Welcome to episode two of Cinema Journal Presents Acamedia. Uh, we made a second one, Michael. Wait, wait, what? Second? A, a second one. There's apparently more than one of these. Wow. Yeah. We've got much in store for you this episode. We've got a Cinema Journal Presents segment offering an interview with Yvonne Tasker. We have an Acamedia on Location feature about a new media industries working group at Georgia State University. And finally, to get SCMS conference attendees ready for the upcoming gathering in Chicago, we have a crowdsource segment offering advice for having the best possible SCMS experience. I'm looking forward to that one. And I, I have to admit that I've got a few tips of my own that I'm going to have to share. Okay, I think you should share those. We, uh, yeah, we left the uh, segment to those who offered them, but we can throw in a few thoughts of our own after it as well. It's one of the perquisites of this job. Exactly. We can do whatever the heck we want here. Speaking of things doing what we want, uh, we are actually going to start a new tradition. I don't know if we can call it a tradition yet, if this is only our second well, I think, episode. I think I don't... We just start doing something and we declare <laughs> okay. it a tradition. Exactly. And then we become nostalgic about it in the next right. episode. But we want to open episodes with something we're going to call Acamedia Bites. Um, this is not a snack food. No, it food, doesn't. Though, uh, <laughs> right. It's neither a slur nor a snack food. Um, though we are open to future revenue streams, so uh, that, that might work as product placement someday. Um, but what is this thing, this Acamedia Bites? Michael, you had the idea. Well, here's the thing. I know that I have a few thoughts about our mediated world around us, and um, I like nothing better than a 30-second film or TV review, and so I thought... We could have 30-second film or TV reviews, and we're going to take our own crack at doing a couple of them here, and mm-hmm. we'd like to invite those of you listening to consider doing your own. You could even prepare it as a review haiku. Oh, my. Yeah. The, there's no end to the fascinating things we can do around here. There is no end. Right. But I really like this idea. I think we all sort of have this experience where you, you know, you tweet some things or you post something on Facebook. Um, and so we want to kind of get into this idea that uh, that academics have some interesting perspectives on whether it's movies, films, video games, books, academic work, any of that kind of stuff. Exactly. Now, here's my first one. Mm-hmm. Acamedia Bites, The Americans on FX. The greatest threat the United States now faces is the Soviet Union. Felicity, I never trusted that girl, and I knew she had a secret life ski. It might be Morning in America on FX, but behind the Jordache jeans and jellies, Matahari weaves her web. Will she turn? Will she kill? Duh. She's damaged goods, of course, but the cure for every childhood sexual trauma is obviously the love of a good man, preferably in the backseat of a 77 Oldsmobile. That's it. All right. Nice. I like that. Chris, you got one? Yes, I do. In 1964, World in Action made seven up. And we've been back to film these children every seven years. For our Campus Film Society, we've started to watch the Michael Apted Up series, which revisits the same group of people every seven years and recently reached 56 up. We logically started with the first two films, Seven Up and Seven Plus Seven, and I find them riveting, but um, I won't comment on the obvious ways they're riveting, of course, seeing the characters develop. Instead, I want to tout just one single scene in Seven Plus Seven, one of the great happenstance documentary moments. It involves a character named Susie and something happening in the background, but I won't spoil it. 
uh, because its impact draws from its unexpected nature. But this rather amazing thing happens in the background as the camera bounces hesitantly between Susie and that. And then the action moves to the foreground so the documentarian can get Susie to comment on it. And the answer she gives just perfectly defines her character. Even though I'd seen maybe all of 10 minutes of her at this point, I was like, yeah, that's Susie for you. So if there was a Hall of Fame for great documentary moments, that's in there. And in fact, I want to start a Hall of Fame for great documentary moments just to make that a first ballot selection. Um, but that one scene is also representative of how revelatory the series is as a whole. So I highly recommend you check it out on DVD or Netflix Instant, um, though I wouldn't recommend binging. Maybe don't wait seven years between films, but give it a few weeks um, so the reuse of previous footage doesn't get tedious and so you can let wonders like Susie and the background incident really sink in. Love it. I want to know what that thing is. See, now you have to see it. Do you want me to spoil it for you? or I don't know. Okay, tell me. All right. Um, so it... Ah, excellent. Okay. Y'all got to watch this. It's been probably 15 or 20 years since I've seen any of those, but I do remember that scene totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been in my head since then because it's just a great moment. Yeah, that, um... that one sticks with you. All right. So all of you Acamedia listeners out there, if you have a 30-second Acamedia bite, please share it with us. It could be about a film, could be about a TV show, could be about um, a website or music. But keep it short, keep it pithy, and if you're very, very lucky, you'll make it on the air. Yes, and uh, we should mention that our email address, info at aca-media.org. Um, Bill, our resident uh, grammatical cop with us, uh, he reminded me that it's not a dash, it's a hyphen. You so, know, I, info. I, oh, sorry, I, I understand, I understand that it's aca-hyphen, aca-hyphen media. Right. Um, but really, I think of us kind of a, as more of a dash kind of crowd. I mean, we're kind of academic media, don't you think? I feel more dash than hyphen. This is true. Oh, um, we might have to take this up with Bill behind the scenes. Hmm. All right. Aka-media. So. Dot org. All right. So what do we have next, Chris? Uh, well, you're up next. You have an interview with Yvonne Tesker. Oh, wonderful. This was a terrific conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Yvonne Tasker is Professor of Film Studies and Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at the University of East Anglia in the UK. She has published widely on the politics of popular culture, including work on gender in action cinema and television, representations of military and national security, and post-feminist media culture. She joins us today from her office to discuss her recent cinema journal article, Television, Crime, Drama, and Homeland Security, From Law and Order to Terror TV. Dr. Tasker, welcome to Acamedia. Hi. I was wondering if if we might start um, by talking a little bit about your article, which, in your words, explores the migration of themes of homeland security and political violence from sensational action formats to procedural crime dramas. And one of the things I found especially interesting was uh, this this movement from from the sort of fantastical world of, of action and um, the limitless possibilities of agency of those kinds of characters in like in spy shows and that kind of thing to the, the sort of nitty gritty nuts and bolts dry world of the procedural drama. Um, and I guess I'll just start by asking, what do you feel are the most important uh, characteristics of that, of that kind of genre shift or that modal shift, that narrative shift? that influence the way that we understand political violence and terrorism? I guess 
thematically, I was quite surprised that they're quite similar in many ways. But yeah, the, the, there's a different way of handling that material, I suppose. So in the action-oriented shows, it's much more um, it's much more glamorous in a way. It's it's sensational, and there is there is a sense of um, the race against time, and and that it's it's going to be resolved um, through action rather than through clues or evidence or figuring things out uh, so it's, it's a different process of narration I think um, but it, it, the similarity is that they come up with the same well comparable solutions in effect well and they come up with solutions at all yeah <laughs> yeah I mean that that clearly is a, a, a fantastical response to real world issues um, because we know that whether it's in crime that's more mundane or political violence, these things don't get wrapped up in those ways. It, it's something different is going on in drama. Uh, but that's no different with political violence than with the way that homicide's dealt with, for instance, mm -hmm. which leaves grief in its wake, but that doesn't register within the genre so much. Right. As an observer of these shows within the U.S. and within a not necessarily a, a specifically terrorism, global security, homeland security context, it seems that the perhaps the most central conceit of procedural crime dramas in the U.S. is their confidence in their ability to resolve crime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, but that's that's not just in the U.S. Yeah, um, it's the confidence of a confidence in being able to resolve the crime, or, or to, at least to establish who's responsible. Right. Yeah, that, that, that runs throughout. It runs through the crime dramas, it runs through um, the action shows. Um, I guess the stakes are different, that's the point. Mm -hmm. So in some of the crime dramas, it's more tortured in, in, in a sense of there's a, there's a lot of guilt about the methods that the investigators have to use to, to uncover. They, they feel bad about it. They still do it. But of course, of course they still do it. <laughs> but they feel bad about doing it. So <laughs> coercion or uh, deceiving people and so on, which... Clearly, it's unethical, but it's those ethical codes are just suspended, if you like. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about about the way in which the sort of multicultural imperatives of American television influence the way that these representations work. I think there is this real desire to portray America as um, uh, a nation that is open and tolerant, even in scenarios which are very explicitly displaying the opposite in a sense and that's that's handled through yeah the multi multiracial investigative team that, that that's very conventional very familiar to us now and um and particularly the way that um i talked about how racial profiling is handled so it's something that uh that doesn't always work it's shown to be problematic you can't make judgments on the basis of people's religion or their ethnicity but in the end you kind of can again so it it, it sort of there is this real commitment to an idea of America, I think, uh, as, 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 yeah, multicultural and, and open. And, um, and again, I, I see that in crime shows beyond, you know, shows that deal with homeland security. It's, it's there. It's, it's kind of there in British crime shows as well. There is this commitment to showing the diversity of, of the nation being represented there. Right. I was struck by one sentence of yours that really kind of neatly captured this, and you wrote, Thus, both Bones and Lie to Me set up Middle Eastern characters as suspects, demonstrate their innocence, and then arrive at an alternative Middle Eastern villain. Yeah. Which seems to capture it really quite nicely. Well, 
that is exactly what they do. So they, they kind of ask you to, to question the assumptions you're making and then reconfirm them. So, uh, th and that's what procedural narratives try to do. You know, they constantly set up red herrings and um, substitute, uh, you know, there's no point just introducing the, 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 the guilty party right at the beginning. That's not how procedural narratives work. You have to work your way through those who seem suspicious but actually aren't the ones and, and eventually you get there. Um, action shows are much more, there's the villain, he or she is the one you're after and you've just got to catch them. So it's a different sort of uh, scenario. But I, I did try and look at some episodes from, say, Law and Order, where they, they, they really try and, and, and get away from that. So it's not the Middle Eastern character. It's not the, uh, the Muslim character who's, who's culpable. It's uh, you know, a kind of far-right uh, sort of white patriot or someone like that who's mm -hmm. seen as the, the, the figure who's responsible. So there are some twists in some of the shows. And sometimes it turns out to be uh, a white convert to Islam who is our villain. In one of the shows that I talk about, yeah. And it's another twist. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think um, there's a way in which in a lot of the shows like Law and Order, uh, the, the murderer turns out to be female. And statistically, that's very... It's not really the case necessarily, but it's disproportionate. It's quite rare. <laughs> uh, so this is a point I, uh, I think um, that, that's been made that you know, homicide isn't representative, if you like. It's not. It's not. It's not meant to be. <laughs> so that's not a criticism. But but we can take note of who is portrayed as the victim most regularly and who's portrayed as you know the murderer, the the the, the threat, the violent figure within, and so on. And um, it's very. It's very uh, telling politically, I guess, how that's happened. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it yet, but have you been? Um, have you taken a look at the Showtime series Homeland? I've seen the first season, and the second season has played here, and I have not yet watched it. <laughs> well, we're we're both in the same place because I'm not caught up yet entirely either. But it 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 struck me that um, that a lot of these same kinds of tropes are playing out in that show, which is not exactly. It's not as firmly rooted in the procedural crime drama as some of the other programs you're talking about, but it seems like it's certainly borrowing some of those same tropes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think Homeland is, it's like the quality TV version of some of these uh, tropes that, that we see in, like, NCIS or, or those kinds of shows. I mean, it's, it's got some sort of thrilling cliffhanger moments. It's got the just-in-time sequences. It's got personal, you know bravery and peril and all of that and we see this backstory around the central character who's um uh well both actually they're both the central male character and the central female character who are traumatized in different ways by their experience of violence and so on and it's bound up with religion and personal identity and so on it's very familiar but it's done in a a more layered way, but it's 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 generic still, it seems to me. There's more. There's many, 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 many more. The thing is, Saul, the avenues here has methods and patterns and priorities. A single sniper? No. No, Avenue's here doesn't do that. He, he never has. He, he never will. He goes big. He explodes. He mains en masse. We know that. Slow down. Slow down. Well, facts. Facts are facts. And we have about a week. Maybe less to figure out the real target, not the single shots the president's spy novel 101 bullshit. 
Oh, actually, that's the working theory. Well, it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's incomplete. Walker's not even critical. He, he's just a part, a piece, a pixel, a pawn of no importance. There is a bigger, pernicious, Abu Nazir-worthy plot out there, and we have little time. We, we have to code it, collide it, collapse it, contain it. Right, lie down, Carrie. You do have this sense of um, an investigative figure who's haunted by failure, by a failure in the past and how that shaped their their present. And it, 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 there's a real sense of duty, which, I mean, you see that in so many of, of, of the, the series which deal with, with crime and policing and uh, um, homeland security. It's the sense of responsibility, the burden of, of representing, not of representing the nation, of defending the nation, I right. guess. Which trumps all criticism, right? I mean, if yeah. duty is the ultimate trump card, which makes it, which obliterates any kinds of ethical concerns about torture, about manipulation, about, you know, lying to suspects and, you know, anything can be done in the name of duty and it's still ethically defensible. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm actually, it's interesting. I'm not sure how, how often the shows are sometimes quite tongue-in-cheek about this almost. Um, certainly with um, there's the real difference in tone between some of them are quite jokey almost about it, uh, and others are much more, uh, much more intense, much more serious about the ethical responsibilities that um, that being in this kind of uh, position involves. But mm -hmm. um, I, I think the ethical um, dilemmas around coercion are, are stepped over pretty quickly in most of the scenarios that I've watched, even um, casually in some cases. Oh, well, you know, it may not be right, but this is what we have to do. And um, it, it's it, it's very rarely outright torture as such, because that's very controversial um, politically. It also, you know, plays, plays out badly in terms of prime time. Uh, conventions, but it's often pretty close. Um, it's it's fairly yeah, coercive methods of one kind or another, or de you know, detention without trial, that kind of thing, threatening people with um, de deportation, etc. Um, the, these are techniques that seem to be used without much sense that they're serious or problematic. In defense of Homeland, it seems like one of the interesting things about that show is that the basic premise is... Um, about blowback, right? It's about it's about the the echoing back um, on onto the U.S. of the consequences of that kind of extra legal behavior. We we brought it on ourselves, right? Absolutely, the chickens come home to roost, and I think that's part of, or I wonder if that is part of why the show is able to kind of occupy this sort of curious political space so that it it embraces these techniques while at the same time it's it is showing the consequences of those techniques over a kind of longer term yeah i suppose what homeland does is show that it's not that it is complex in a certain way and as you get further away from the historical events of 9-11 there's a there's a real sense that you know this is not re resolvable in any meaningful kind of way it, it simply isn't it's uh and what you have um what you get played out is a different sort of scenario because so political violence itself is not understandable within the conventions of, of crime because the motive doesn't make sense 
you know, the motives that we see within crime drama are things like jealousy and, and, and greed and lust and uh, hatred, these kind of very personal relationships. That's what the genre is really uh, concerned with and uncovers. And whilst all of those things are there in, in the kind of the historical scenarios that generate political violence, it, it doesn't lend itself that well to... to um, to those kinds of more personal motivations. That's, that's one of the things that I try and talk about, that it becomes personal in a certain sort of way. Um, and that gets us away from any kind of understanding of what the violence itself was actually about. It becomes detached from its historical um, circumstances. That's not that surprising. It's not a criticism. It's, it's simply that's, that's what happens within, within the genre as you try and make sense of it. That's, no, that's very interesting. And um, I wonder where that leaves us as viewers. I mean, it, does that put us in the place where and it, it maybe puts us in a position of being able to sort of ironically say, oh, what, what possibly could go wrong with that? Like, you know, like, what's the worst thing that could happen here? You know, right? <laughs> when, of course, the chance is that exactly this kind of behavior is what's going to create another Brody or, you know, another another terrorist. But it, it's a reassuring genre uh, in that sense, because, you know, there's, well, it, it is and it isn't. There's violence everywhere, but it's resolved. I mean, if you think about just how commonplace crime TV makes murder, it's not a... It, <laughs> it, it, it's not that commonplace. Uh, homicide mm -hmm. is something that, that is it's present in different rates in different spaces, different cities at different times, but never as much as you see it on, on television. And there is a way in which um, telling a story about it and telling a story about an investigator who is um, driven and motivated to, to resolve that, that, that is reassuring in, in some uh, quite simplistic way. Uh, it's one of the appeals of the genre, but also one of the appeals of the genre is how it's done. Because we all know when we sit down to watch crime that that's what's going to happen. And, and the interest is in how is that going to play out for us. Uh, and Homeland does that in, in, in a rather different fashion because it's not resolved within one episode. It's drawn out. It's, it's uh, got several narrative strands that are, that are developing. But... You know, I don't want to set up some opposition and say, well, these shows are simple and these shows are complex. Right. It's, it's, they're all doing things that we are familiar with and we know what we're going to get. To change gears just a little bit, I'm interested in your particular perspective on these issues as a Brit uh, and as an observer of American television and of American political culture. As an outsider in that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is something particular to watching American television's take on uh, these questions, and, and you know, political violence obviously has been a significant feature of British political life in a different kind of set of ways, um, and it's handled quite differently, I think. On uh, there's a whole tradition of espionage television and. Um, shows like Spooks and so on, which, which deal with, uh, in quite graphic ways, actually, with, with the sort of violence that, that's confronted there. But um, it is nationally specific, and that's something that you see from the outside in a, in a slightly different way. The emphasis on <clears throat> uh, 
patriotism, for example, and, and um, that's such a strong feature of American television, which uh, and the way in which it. Um, what, what, what's the best way of describing this? Because it's very hard to kind of encapsulate when, when you when you you think what what is it about how uh, U.S. shows handle this that's different, but. Um, uh, for example, there's a way in which uh, um, when a character appears who has a military background, that that is taken as a sign of their valour and their integrity. And in other national contexts, that might be taken as a sign of their ability to use violence or their instability, potentially. Um, but we know that in American shows, a, a military background is, is a sign that somebody is good and can be trusted for the most part, Homeland right. is slightly... Homeland <laughs> complicates that, right. In that, in that regard. And that seems um, that seems very nationally uh, specific. The other thing that, that really strikes me from the outside is the way that these um, different genres interact with each other. They're hybrid crime genres. And um, uh, the, the way in which you get action put together with, with comedy and with investigation and so on. It's, uh, it's quite innovative, I think. I was thinking about um, Spooks, which airs in the U.S. as MI5. It, it airs as MI5? I didn't know that. Um, yes. I think, and I haven't, I haven't looked this up, but I presume it's because the word spook in the U.S. has a history as a racial pejorative. Oh, oh okay. Or as, opposed uh, to <laughs> as opposed to spy. Right. Yeah, okay. Right. So it's retitled here. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking about exactly what you're saying about about how in the U.S. shows, the flag is a kind of ironclad ideological guarantee, right? You know, of of the of the uh, the patriotic bona fides of the of the characters. But but yeah, I don't I don't recall very much of that at all in in, in Spooks, which seems much more just kind of in the trenches. Um, dealing with the, you know, dealing with the with what's immediately in front of them, without this sort of covering narrative of defending national sovereignty or anything like that. Well, I, I suppose it's to do with the different. It's to do, in a sense, with the different national histories. Because if you had the 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 Union Jack, the, the British flag, it's associated with. Um, imperialism above all else. I mean, some people might say that of the US, but it, I, I think it's it's invoked in more of a spirit of independence and uh, democracy and so on, rather than um, the connotations of, of, of the sort of British nation. And I think in terms of espionage um, and television shows that deal with that subject matter, there's uh, there's sort of almost two traditions. On the one hand, there's the action one, which is more Mission Impossible sort of chases and uh, rather um, sort of hokey uh, in many ways. You've got that, but then you've also got a much darker tradition, which is you can't trust anybody. It's very um, scenarios of double identities and uh, um, the potential for violence around every corner. I think Spooks is more in that kind of tradition. Mm-hmm. You've been interested in American TV and American action TV for quite a while. I was teaching a genre class just this past this past um, semester, and 
one of the things I did was the Western, and I really, really enjoyed using your article on Kung Fu as... <laughs> As someone who grew up as a as you know an American boy in the 1970s and watching that show and being um, both flabbergasted and bewildered and and really enchanted by it, I thought you really captured it remarkably effectively. Thank you. It's um yeah I suppose you you I do have something of a fascination with American. TV. I like the way it uh, elaborates some of the themes I'm interested in. Probably like a lot of other um, generically fuzzy, generically hybrid shows, it actually ends up in more interesting cultural and ideological terrain, precisely because of the things that it pulls together, right? Because it's this mix of, of elements that don't fit neatly together, actually creates some moments of friction that that become really interesting opportunities for, for more discussion. No, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's, whether it's in teaching or in research, I don't know if it's the same, maybe it's also the same with viewing. It's things that don't quite work in a certain way that, that attract your, your interest. Well, in that same, there's a similar kind of generic hybridity and, and kind of critical viewing opportunity in the in the homeland security shows that you're talking about, right? I mean, these are these are programs that that are blending these genre modes in ways that sometimes work quite neatly and sometimes yeah. don't. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes the the, the, the juxtaposition of action, excuse me, that bringing together action and investigation can work really really well. So you can discover the clue, then you have the chase, <laughs> that elaboration of. Uh, of the race against time with the, the sort of deductive aspects that can really be quite uh, productive. And I, um, I was interested in her show like uh, NCIS, which when I first watched it seemed improbable to me, but which draws the forensic aspects from uh, from CSI and draws the military aspects from JAG and throws in a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, actually, they're not contradictory. They kind of can work within the same format. And uh, function as both action TV and quorum TV. Very interesting. Dr. Tasker, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for taking the time to discuss your work with us. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Every morning, the president receives a report that updates the most active threats against the United States. This report is called the Threat Matrix. The Department of Homeland Security handpicked teams of agents from the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA to analyze and respond to the Threat Matrix report. Now, their job is to keep us safe. So there's some more fascist transitional music from us. We had aggressive expansion last week, and this one is the theme to Threat Matrix. Um, we actually have another theme of aggressive expansion coming up. Uh, in this segment, both Georgia State and Atlanta are looking to expand their media industry's scope, perhaps even aggressively. In 
In late November of last year, I attended a day-long forum at Georgia State University in downtown Atlanta, which was dedicated to the formation of a new media industries working group at GSU. Faculty and grad students in the Department of Communication at GSU are starting the working group in order to foster, as their website states, a research collective dedicated to studying the evolving media ecology of Atlanta, the southern region, and beyond. The morning session of the forum involved freeform discussion among academics about how this working group might develop partnerships with the Aries entertainment industry to benefit GSU's research, teaching, and mentoring efforts, while also serving the industry enough to encourage media industry executives to welcome this contact. Uh, Then the afternoon featured a panel discussion entitled From Butler to Boo Boo, Atlanta's Evolving Role as a Media Capital, in which academics and local entertainment industry uh, representatives shared their thoughts on Atlanta's growth as a media industry hub and offered suggestions for how an academically inclined working group could play a role in the region's continued expansion. Smartly, the organizers of the event invited academics who have tackled similar goals elsewhere, such as Jennifer Holt, uh, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara and co-director of the Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project at UCSB. This group has very successfully fostered research relationships with major Hollywood studios, most prominently via a connected viewing initiative that works with Warner Brothers Digital Distribution Unit. So for this podcast piece, I wanted to first investigate what has made the Media Industries Project such a success, and then consider how some of its lessons might apply to what Georgia State is looking to launch, and while understanding how the unique media ecology of Atlanta might pose different challenges. So I first spoke with Jennifer Hold about the origins of the Media Industries Project, which began to take shape in 2008. The Media Industries Project evolved out of the, really out of the 2008 writer's strike and Dick Wolf and Marcy Carsey, who have created the Carsey Wolf Center at UC Santa Barbara, they were interested in having a place where these issues were debated in ways that were more substantive than a lot of the discussion taking place in the popular press, for example. And they didn't see much scholarly analysis or much in-depth analysis of what it means to be compensated in the digital space or you know a history of creative labor's battles against management in terms of issues relating to compensation and residuals and that kind of thing and so they asked us to um, think about a space at UC Santa Barbara that could address some of these things so um, we basically try have been trying to create that space where industry and academics can come together and have a lot of these conversations and bring us closer to our object of study and bring our perspective to bear on some of the things they're doing and have their perspective help inform some of our research. But for that research to have genuine value, Holt found that the media industries group had to dig beyond the corporate spin and talking points that executives tended to offer in early meetings and get them to open up more honestly. That took commitment and time. This project was like years in the making Mm -hmm. and endless interviews in the leading up to a place of trust that got us beyond the talking points because we heard the talking points for, I don't know, four, five, six, seven interviews, you know, and then you get to a different um, level of discussion where they trust you enough to kind of talk beyond the corporate spin. And, but that takes a long time. 
The payoff for this time investment ideally serves both industry and academia, with the results taking the form of both anthology chapters and business reports. And one key takeaway from my conversation with Holt was that a working group such as the one GSU is starting has to find a way to make its research attractive to the industry if it hopes to foster those long-term connections with media companies. I spoke further about that with Ethan Tussie, who is a key bridge between the Media Industries Project and the GSU Working Group. That's because Tussie was previously a grad student researcher for the Media Industries Project while enrolled at UCSB, and he's now an assistant professor of communication at GSU. He described to me the challenge of convincing media industry executives that partnerships with academics can be valuable. The biggest challenge is not one that's going to be totally surprising, is sort of uh, translating the value of academic work to the quarterly you know, budget and, and show your financial gains every quarter system that they're used to. So um, the trick to it is finding people in uh, the industry and in academia that can speak to each other, that see the value in each other's um, work, and um, finding a finding some executive most of the time that um, is going to be open to something that we can bring them that they might not be able to get from their own research and development uh, divisions, which is um, doing sort of a longer uh, analysis of things, uh, considering consumer behaviors that isn't just about purchase points, but of like use and um, connection to things. On the flip side, Tussie sees great value for academics in getting insider access to the film and television industries. We can obviously research the media industries without executive access, but Tussie says long-term contact with industry figures brings knowledge that trade papers and textbooks just can't supply. That's one of the best parts of working with the industry, is that you don't have a, a real sense of all of the obstacles and challenges and opportunities that are facing them until you're like working with them on a particular project and you start to say like oh you can't you can't do this thing that seems obvious to the consumer or to the researcher because of x y and z and um, that's going to make my research more meaningful to uh, the conversation about how the media industries work it's going to make the report that i give you more meaningful for you and it's going to alert my students when i'm teaching it in class to the realities of you know you can't just do whatever the great creative thing is in your head. There are these obstacles in, in the way of those, those kinds of things. And, and here's how you have to be creative within those constraints. As I mentioned, Tussie is bringing expertise gained from the Media Industries Project to GSU. And at the afternoon panel session I attended, Jennifer Holt insisted that Georgia State is even better situated to foster local industry relationships than UCSB has been with Hollywood. Here, you're actually in the middle of this exploding media capital and that, I think, is really exciting in, in, the, in the ways in which your center is starting um, or this working group is starting right alongside the real ascension in production and activity in the city. Another academic guest on the panel offered a very enticing way of thinking about the potential for GSU's initiative in this regard. So here is Horace Newcomb, a professor in the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia in Athens. It's not just Atlanta perfectly placed, it's Georgia State is perfectly placed to do this kind of work, uh, to, to do this kind of analysis. It's like being in Los Angeles in either 1910 or in the 1940s and 50s when television was coming in, to be able to see something emerge like that with all of the attendant problems, plus the fact that we have these other places that are out there. And part of seeing Atlanta become a media center, uh, particularly for production and development, I think, and, and the creative center, 
is that at this point, we know what's going on. We see the TV shows. We know there's the independent scene. We know there's the music scene, all of this. And yet, in many ways, it still doesn't have the mystique. When I teach, I, I occasionally teach courses in, in writing for primetime television. And I tell my students, you know, you will be able eventually to sell something in Atlanta or to send your work back and forth on the internet and so on, but you probably better go to, to LA for a few years. Perhaps the most substantial knowledge I gained at this panel is indicated in Newcomb's comment there. While Georgia is a growing production center, especially thanks to state tax initiatives, it really is still just a production center, not a development center, a financing center, a post-production center. Everything else still takes place in Los Angeles and New York. As a result, local area labor is used primarily in below-the-line capacities rather than in higher profile and higher paid above-the-line roles. So writers, directors, lead actors are all flown in from L.A. rather than drawn from Atlanta. An industry member of the panel, uh, Paul Jenkins, who is a comic book and video game creator based in Atlanta, expressed frustration with his inability to produce a feature film from idea to picture lock in his home city. I'm about to uh, direct a film, and one of the first sets of conversations we had was with a producer in LA who was going to bring in his people. And I think that's very discouraging, because I think there's a lot of talent here. So what I'm very passionate about doing is actually making films with local talent um, we, because there are those people here, we're just not doing it. What the focus should really be here is to, is to keep the talent that we have here and try to find a way to work with the state and work with the people that are here and work with the talent to literally start making homegrown productions because we now have that infrastructure to the largest extent. Another professor who has successfully created ties between his institution, the University of Texas at Austin, and the local film industry is Thomas Schatz. And he spoke on the panel about the need for the Georgia State Working Group to determine what role it could play in helping Atlanta to grow even more as a media center. When you do the math on the number of hours of stuff that gets produced in this city, it's amazing. The, the amount of uh, infrastructure that is here, uh, it needs to be developed more, I think, to get into the kind of uh, so that more projects are actually being generated here uh, and being controlled by, you know, talent, you know, here in town. But this is a, you know, this, this is a city that, that is poised like no other city in the U.S. outside of L.A. and New York, you know, to do something pretty dramatic. Uh, and, again, what, what kind of relationships need to be cultivated for that to happen, uh, re, you know, remains to be seen. And that's obviously one of the reasons that this uh, project is being uh, initiated. The hard work of guiding that project will now be taken up by people like Ethan Tussie, and I left the day's events very excited to see this working group build over the coming year and to see Atlanta continue to build as a media center. I also left more convinced than ever about the value of fostering relationships between academia and industry. Of course, most universities don't have the local or institutional resources to build and sustain an entire media industry working group for years, but individual researchers can certainly make strides toward connecting with industry figures. With that in mind, I'll close this segment with a final comment from Jennifer Holt on just how open many media industry executives are to interview requests from academics. I have found that people really do like the time and space to reflect more thoughtfully on their daily job because mm -hmm. they're so busy and they're working so fast and you know they don't think about you know the big picture of what they're doing often and they don't have time they're so busy doing it and the opportunity to do that i find that so many of them really enjoy it's something that gives them you know 
a way to reflect on what they're doing and engage with scholars, which many of them really seem to find um, enjoyable as a change of pace, um, a way to make more sense out of what it is that they're doing. A good way to get started with this kind of research is to get involved with SEMS's Media Industry Special Interest Group, or SIG as they're called for short. Uh, this group is dedicated to fostering scholarship on the industry, so check out their website at mediaindustrystudies.org. Uh, the SIG also has an interesting mentoring program, and they're hoping to pair up established media industry scholars with graduate students interested in that area. So if you'd like to be on either end of that, um, contact Darcy West Morris at dmorris at tosin.edu, and we'll put links on our website about that if if you're driving right now and can't write that down. Um, you can also attend the Media Industry SIG meeting at the upcoming SCMS conference, which will run from March 6th through the 10th and will be held at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. You know, if I'm not mistaken, that sure sounded like the theme music from Walking Dead. Yes, it was. Shot in Georgia. So. Which reminds me of one of the great cautionary tales about conferencing. Oh, good. <laughs> well, you got to stay... You, you got to stay hydrated, you've got to stay energized, and you have to really plan out your day. Um, otherwise, you might just be reduced to a zombie. So here's the thing. Here at Acomedia, we wanted to create something of a user's guide to the SEMS conference. And so here are some of the best suggestions we've received from you, our faithful, loyal listeners. What piece of advice do I have for those attending SCMS? Well, if you feel you must read your paper... Please do three things. Number one, write casually. In other words, as you type out those brilliant thoughts of yours on that computer screen, use conversational language to support your scholarly points. And if you can, throw in a joke or two. Virtually no one wants to sit through a monotonous, 20-minute, jargon-filled, Lacanian analysis of two and a half men, right? Which brings me to point number two. Stop writing at seven double-spaced typed pages. One double-spaced type page equals about two and a half minutes of reading. So seven pages then equals about 17 minutes of presentation time, which is just enough to get your point across, to refrain from boring your audience, and to end on time so that your panel chair will praise your name forevermore. This changes, however, if you follow rule number three. Bring visuals, handouts, media clips, PowerPoint presentations. It does not matter. Just make sure the audience has something to look at as you're casually and energetically reading your work. That said, if you screen clips, be sure to cut your paper accordingly. Hi, this is Tim Yenter, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Mississippi, reminding you that conferences are a unique situation in which you bring scholars together into the same room. So, hey, if you're going to just read your paper, there's no need for anyone to be in the room with you. Think about what's unique to this particular setting and emphasize that as you make your presentation. Drew Morton here. My piece of SCMS advice is pretty obvious, and I think that's sometimes why people forget it, and that's the fact that you're giving a vocal presentation. People don't have the luxury in the audience of going back and reading your argument, so tailor your presentation to fit that model. Hit some of the same points uh, again and remind us of what you're talking about. We'll just get much more out of the presentation that way, and we'll be able to give you more feedback as well. Because the SCMS conference can be overwhelming, treat it like a marathon. Map out your plan for what will undoubtedly be a very long weekend. Get enough sleep, 
Make sure you have water and pretzels and chocolate to eat. Talk to and shake hands with or fist bump as many conference goers as you can. Applaud presenters and reward yourself every night you're there with a decent meal. This is Derek Compare from Southern Methodist University. And my advice for everyone is to uh, connect and network and meet people. You should always meet somebody new. When you're at SCMS, you should always introduce people. Uh, That's the way our field gets bigger and better and livelier. So good luck and have fun. For women, definitely go to the girls' night out dinner on Thursday night. It is, in my experience, the least intimidating networking event at SCMS. It's really, it's just a space for women to interact and connect through informal conversation and really good food. If I had one piece of advice to give somebody who is attending SCMS for the first time, that would be to get a Twitter account if you don't already have one. I found Twitter to be invaluable for meeting people who I was perhaps too nervous to approach uh, in person. Uh, Twitter gives you a great way to introduce yourself. It's also a great way to keep tabs on what's happening at the conference in other panels, also uh, in terms of evening events that may not always be listed on the official website. I think a great way to get started would be to check out the folks that are already following the official SCMS account or to look at the SCMS 13 hashtag and see what people are tweeting from that. Hi, this is Michael Dwyer from Arcadia University. My biggest piece of SCMS advice is to make it your goal to introduce two people that you know to each other. The value of something like SCMS isn't only in the panels and in the workshops, it's in building connections, intellectually and personally. There's a temptation, I think, especially when you're a young scholar, to spend all your time with the people that you already know. But I found just over the short time that I've attended SCMS that the conference truly opens up when you and your friends make a commitment to extend your networks. And this not only makes the conference more fun, it also makes it more rewarding. So if you don't know anybody at SCMS, find me and let me introduce you to someone else that I know. And then if all goes well, you can eventually return the favor. Hi, this is Karen. And my advice is that you study for the conference like you would study for an exam. Take that PDF of the schedule and read through the whole thing. Look for the names of scholars you've read that you've really liked. That's always a good first step in terms of trying to decide how you're going to plan your day. But also sit down with your mentor and talk about it and say, this is what I'm thinking of. Would you have advice for panels I should be looking at or people I don't know? Because this is your chance to see the people's work that you already are interested in and to learn about the people you're not. Hi, I'm Kristen Warner. My one piece of advice is to remember that there is no one right way to conference, that for everyone that attends, everyone has their own idea of what brings them joy and to remember that you need to find that for yourself. For some of us, it's attending all the conference panels and workshops. It's attending all of the social activities. For some of us, it's attending one or two a day. It's about meeting up with friends. It's about exploring the city that we're in. So find the thing that works for you and don't let anybody else's race or anybody else's conference impact your own. Hello, this is Lindsay Hogan. Remember that while a conference might be the biggest aspect of SCMS, the conference isn't the only part. Being a member of SCMS also means year-round resources for meeting people, for asking questions and engaging with other scholars, like this Acromedia podcast, for example, not to mention the web pages, blogs, email listservs, chat boards, etc., that each of the caucuses and SIGs and the grad student organizations have online on the SCMS website.
Much thanks to those who offered us uh, SEMS advice, and you heard in order, that was Kelly Marshall, Tim Yenter, Drew Morton, Tony Bleach, Derek Compare, Beth Corzo-Dukart, Amanda Ann Klein, Michael Dwyer, Karen Petruska, and her dog Cora, who you may have heard trot up, very excited to participate with the SEMS advice segment. And then uh, finally it ended with Kristen Warner and Lindsay Hogan. And... Uh, kudos to Bill Kirkpatrick, who produced that segment, um, but never talks on this podcast. He's, uh, he's our mystery voice, structuring absence there. He's a very, very shy voice. Mm-hmm. You are a shy face. We have uh, on our website, you don't have your picture up there. You know, and, and there are other questions about our little junta here. I'm mm-hmm. not sure anyone knows how you smell. That is my structuring absence, right? So uh, we encourage you to come up to, to me at SEMS and smell me and solve that mystery. And maybe someday someone will tell us what Todd Thompson tastes like, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Speaking of The Walking Dead, right. Here's one thing I would like to add to that list of, of fantastic suggestions. Please, in the name of all that is holy, don't use commercial DVDs for your clips. Because while we're sitting there watching the... Uh, the preview for American Pie 4 while you're nervously pulling your hair out trying to get the fast forward button to work. All of the energy will drain out of the room. The clock will be ticking down. You'll be crossing off paragraphs that you won't have have time to share with us. And it's going to just make for a fairly miserable time for everybody involved. So line up the clips. Don't use commercial DVDs. Your life will be better. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Also, everyone in the room who has Twitter will be on Twitter looking at tweets while you're doing that. And like you say, they'll completely be distracted. Um, which reminds me also of just a couple of things we had to cut out of the SMS advice just to keep that segment moving. Um, first of all, there's going to be the Girls' Night Out gathering. And so if you want to find out more about that event, you can go to gno-2013.eventbrite.com. Um, there's also going to be a social media meeting or a tweet-up, I think, as it's called by people unlike me who can pull off that word. Um, that's going to be Wednesday night. So for that one, you can go to scms2013.eventbrite.com. Again, we'll put those links on our website. Terrific. All right. So we will see you at SMS. Please come up and talk to us. We'd love to chat with people, find out what kind of segments you'd like to hear on Media. We'll even be interviewing some of you. So um, be ready for us walking around with recorders that actually look like tasers. They do. They look a little bit like a taser or a little bit like a tricorder from Star Trek. Oh, I like that even better. It's a little, it's not, you know, quite as obnoxious as a taser. <laughs> right. So um, our next episode is going to come at the end of March. We'll have some SEMS content. We'll have interviews. We'll have coverage of the SEMS experience. And plus, as usual, we'll have, have a, a little bit of a tour of Chicago. Yeah, uh, some, some sounds of Chicago and so forth. Uh, and we're going to get also our usual Cinema Journal interview in there. Thanks again for listening to Acomedia. And we'd like to thank um, our guest today, so Yvonne Tasker, everyone at the Georgia State Media Industries Working Group, and all of the fantastic people who sent us advice segments. We really appreciated that. Acomedia is produced with the support of the University of Notre Dame. And with the help of Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson. So you'll next hear from us in March, either at SEMS or uh, at the end of the month with our next podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.